coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. All right, and a happy hump day to you. I don't even know how much of a show I'm going to give you today that's not canned interviews from prior days. And I say that with this as a caveat. I, I know there's lots of stuff to cover. We do have a new house speaker, and I'll try and give a little summation of that real quick for you. Uh, however, I need to point out this. Uh, I have, welcome behind the curtain, a colonoscopy in the morning. And so uh, I haven't gotten to eat, and I'm drinking water and uh, that solution as well to prepare for this scope. And so, uh, honestly, I'm not feeling 100% and <laughs> don't know that I can stay here for 44 minutes and just give you a full show without um, some interruptions, if I'm making any sense. Uh, and I'll just leave it at that. So, yes, we do have a new house speaker. His name is Mike Johnson. And by all accounts, he is a demonic <laughs> individual. No, I, listen, uh, I've, like most uh, of you who, uh, you know, follow social media or maybe you uh, uh, adhere to a lot of uh, left of center social media accounts, you're getting all of these horrible takes uh, about the kind of cretin that Mike Johnson is. And, well, what did you expect? Seriously, what did you expect? There wasn't going to be uh, a Liz Cheney in waiting uh, on the right who was going to get enough votes to be Speaker of the House. And doggone it, as, as, hard as, as hard as Democrats tried, they were not going to catch Republicans sleeping and uh, get Hakeem Jeffries elected to Speaker of the House. So anyway, we'll spend a little bit of time on Mike Johnson, give you a little bit of uh, his background. He's actually politically for Washington, a relative newcomer. And we know that the uh, anti-government, basically break it all down kind of movement within uh, the GOP probably likes that. They like the not career politician, the not polished. And he may well be a polished speaker. He certainly know Lauren Boebert or Marjorie Taylor Greene or even Matt Gates or even Jim Jordan. In fact, a lot of folks have actually described him as Jim Jordan with a jacket. All right, we, we will dive into that in a little bit. But a local story that I wanted to focus on, to me, is sort of important. And I think this is the sort of thing that uh, Democratic politicians at the state level can make some hay with. Uh, I want to say this was written, and it was. Uh, Maya Prabhu at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution notes that, headline, Georgia Republican legislators seek cash bail for more offenses. While we are dealing with overcrowding at the Fulton County Jail, sometimes more than two times as many prisoners as the facility was designed for, and yes, it does fall on Fulton County's shoulders that we don't have a solution to that just yet. But some of us think that maybe the idea is just not locking so many people up for minor offenses. Just a thought. Well, this flies in the face of that. Uh, the article begins, Georgia Republican lawmakers are trying to overhaul the state's bond system, more than doubling the number of offenses that will require judges to issue some form of cash bond. The Senate and House passed different versions of bond legislation earlier this year, but were unable to reach a compromise by the time the General Assembly adjourned in late March. Republicans are trying to counter efforts across the country 
during the past decade to move away from requiring people arrested on certain nonviolent misdemeanor charges to pay money to bond out of jail. Some criminal justice advocates say it is unfair for people to end up staying in jail for long periods only because they're unable to pay a cash bond. In other words, they're saying it's not fair to go to jail just because you're poor. Let me continue the article. Senate Bill 63 would add dozens of new offenses, such as trespassing and forgery, that would require cash bail to get out of jail. Ugh, here we go again. I cannot believe I'm having to say this man's name again. The bill sponsor, State Senator Randy Robertson, a Catala Republican, remember him from the Buckhead City Movement? And former major with the Muskogee County Sheriff's Office, said his bill aims to ensure that people who have been arrested and released on bond return for their trial. We want to make sure they show up in court and make sure victims are assured their day in court. Also, so they don't have to sit at home and wait because somebody has absconded out in the wind and they have to sit there feeling no justice at all. I imagine that's what he sounds like. If I'm wrong, I'll own it. By the way, while Randy Robertson probably likes to tout his law enforcement background, it should be pointed out, and I love this article from the LaGrange News, the LaGrange Daily News, Daniel Evans reporting on this back in 2018. State Senate candidate, then candidate, Randy Robertson was investigated for an extramarital affair while serving as a lieutenant for the Muskogee County Sheriff's Office nearly two decades ago. According to documents from an internal investigation from the sheriff's office, the incident took place in 1999. The preceding investigation found Robertson in violation of conduct unbecoming an officer and immoral conduct. According to the findings from the investigation, Robertson and Kathy McArdle, his sister-in-law at the time, had sexual contact on two occasions in March or April of 1999. For her part, McArdle said that both incidents occurred while Robertson was still on duty. But Robertson maintained during the investigation he was not on duty. He reaffirmed that position. Yeah, this is the guy who wants to put more cash bonds on people for things like trespassing or check forgery. He's joined by State Representative Houston Gaines, an Athens Republican, back to the AJC article, who sponsored SB 63 in the House, uh, said the chamber's version aren't far apart. Last session, we went through each of the offenses and discussed what should and shouldn't be included. We didn't have time to finish that conversation. I think it's important to be very deliberate about that, and I think we'll need to have that conversation when the conferees meet in January, Houston Gaines said. The article goes into some of the areas where, again, being poor, or in this case, homeless, could land one in jail. I mean, a cotton three squares, I suppose, but still... State Senator Kim Jackson, Democrat, Episcopal priest, whose church, the article says, works with people who are homeless, said she's worried that adding crimes to the list of charges that force someone to pay a cash bail to get out of jail will disproportionately affect the indigent community, saying, criminal trespassing is one of the most common charges that a person who's experiencing homelessness is charged with. Certain cities such as Clarkston and Jackson's district have passed local laws to allow officers to write just a ticket if someone is caught with less than an ounce of marijuana. Under this bill, though, officers would no longer be able to just write a citation. 
they would have to arrest the person on a charge of possession, marijuana, y'all, and take them to jail where a judge would require a bond to be paid for their release. Kim Jackson says, even if the judge gives them a bail of $5, if they don't have $5 on their person and don't have anyone they can get the money from, they have to sit in jail until their case can be heard, and sometimes that's years. This is further punishing people who are poor. But then with MAGA Republicans, we know that oftentimes the cruelty is the point. And just to show you where Republicans have migrated from where they once were, when Nathan Deal was governor in 2018, he focused on cleaning up a lot of this stuff. Lawmakers, according to the article, passed legislation that requires judges to consider a defendant's financial status when setting bail and allowed law enforcement officers to issue citations instead of filing criminal charges for low-level offenses. Back then, it, post, it passed both chambers unanimously with many of the same lawmakers who voted for that measure now supporting SB 63. Further down, several of the lawmakers who supported Deal's efforts but are now backing SB 63 are on a committee investigating overcrowding, backlogs, and dangerous conditions at the Fulton County Jail. Make it make sense, y'all. The committee was announced days after a report about the 10th inmate to die in custody there this year. Remember, though, they're pro-life. Earlier this week, we found out that the problem with Jon Stewart will no longer exist on Apple TV+, Plus, mostly because he wanted to cover AI, but and you know how Apple feels about that. I, I want to share a clip from that show where he covered the bail problem. America has about 2 million people locked up. To be fair, there are reasons to incarcerate individuals who present a danger to society. In fact, why don't we hear a danger to society? Tell us about it. Out of control criminals, predators and murderers, a man literally defecating on the street in front of people who are sitting at a restaurant. Hey, hey, hey! <laughs> you don't have to bring James Corden into this. <laughs> I didn't say which one he was in that. <laughs> but with that uh, two million number are many low-level offenses. And there are also over 400,000 people who haven't even been convicted. Most are stuck behind bars because they don't have money for bail. Mm -hmm. In other words, poor people. It seems getting arrested is less about penal code and more about zip code and tax code. Let me give you just a taste of a documentary narrated by John Legend called The Truth About the Cash Bail Industry. Khalif Browder was 16 years old when he was accused of stealing a backpack by a man who changed his story several times. Khalif spent three years in jail, 80% of that time in solitary confinement. He received regular beatings by corrections officers. Eventually, he committed suicide. Khalif mm. was never convicted of a crime. He always said he was innocent, even when pressured to take a plea deal to get out early. And after three years, the district attorney's office dismissed the charges when it became clear they had no case. So how did this happen? How did a 16-year-old boy convicted of no crime spend three years in jail? It all started because prosecutors demanded a teenager accused of petty theft pay $3,000 in bail. Knowing it would pull him out of his young life, trap him in jail, even force him to plead guilty despite his claim of innocence, they demanded totally unnecessary and out-of-reach bail from young Khalif, jailing him. 
Khalif's story is not just tragic, it's an outrageous injustice. And there are far too many other stories of injustice like this around the nation. Hundreds of thousands are pulled out of school, pulled out of their jobs, pulled out of church, pulled out of their families and communities, trapped in an oppressive and racist criminal justice system by prosecutors, judges, bail bondsmen, and everyone else who profits from it. We need to add to that list politicians who want to brag about how tough on crime their state is. In fact, Houston Gaines said that. We want to make sure people know that we are not a soft on crime state like some of those other states are, he told Maya Prabhu. I'll have that article. I'll have the John Legend narrated documentary and the clip from John Stewart as well in today's show notes at ronshowatl.com. Suffice to say, it's a story we're going to be watching heading into next legislative session. More Ron Show after this, I think, on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to the Ron Show for Wednesday. You want to hear something? A little quirky about me. Um, so I, I mentioned last segment, I, I have a colonoscopy tomorrow at like uh, 10, 20 or so. And I got to get there an hour early and blah, blah, blah. And they're going to, there's like a sedation. Like I'm, this is a procedure. And I guess they want me asleep when this is happening. I know, I know, Ron, you're going to want to be asleep when it's happening too. Uh, <laughs> so I'm having to drink this liquid stuff that's supposed to induce uh, a cleansing of sort. And you know what? I've been watching uh, so many social media commercials for the colon broom. Have you seen these? Yeah. How if so? I'm kind of getting a colon broom for free. Yeah. Uh, I say free. Yeah, my insurance did cover it. So um, anyway, lucky me. But here's the thing: I also have a softball game tonight at eight forty-five, uh, and I'm not supposed to eat today. So I kind of took the well. I'm not going to eat twenty-four hours out from the procedure. So I did have a protein shake this morning. If the doctor's listening, sorry. And here's the thing. I do intermittent fast a lot. In fact, most of the days I only eat twice a day. I only eat lunch and dinner and within a six-hour window. And uh, my dietitian and chiropractor and physical trainer, all one person, by the way, uh, put me on that about five or six years ago or so and it just kind of stuck. So one day a week, I'm supposed to do like a 22 to 24-hour fast. I never do that. Uh, I mean, on occasion I do. I can do it. I just don't. I, I like eating. And uh, occasionally, I think one day a week, I'm supposed to eat like many meals, like three or four. Uh, and I don't do that either. I just intermittent fast, which is why my weight stays about where it is. I'm not like super hungry today, but I imagine tomorrow once I come to or come come back to whatever semblance of normal I'm going to be after I awaken from this procedure, I am going to be ravenous. And uh, I'm probably going to be hungry after playing softball tonight. And I know what you're thinking. Well, why, why would you play softball? Well, here's the thing. The team is kind of short on players. We've had a couple of key injuries, and we're a little shorthanded. So I got to play. I got to play. I'm a team guy. Uh, let me get to another little story here that is sort of local. Um, this uh, across the Associated Press. Burt Jones, our lieutenant governor, wants to give teachers a $10,000 a year stipend in exchange for them carrying guns at school. Uh, Jeff Amy at the Associated Press writing that Georgia's lieutenant governor says he wants to pay teachers $10,000 a year to carry guns in schools. That's right, folks. Republican Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones speaking today at an elementary school in Winder said he wants the state to spend more money on school safety, including paying for teachers 
to take firearms training and paying teachers who hold a firearms training certificate an annual stipend. Here's the quote that kind of slays me just a little bit. It's sad, but it is the sign of the times that we have to go to these links to protect our children, but it's just where we are. Yes, it is where we are, Lieutenant Governor, Republican, Burt Jones, when the NRA has spent the last four decades bastardizing the Second Amendment, stuffing our judiciary with judges who see things the way they wish to see things in an extremist manner, that now any nut can walk into a Gander Mountain, buy an AR-15, in many cases with a limited background check and no waiting period. This is just asinine policy, grasping at straws, and really just doubling down on the gun culture that our country already is awash in. I'm also thinking about some of the teachers that I had in middle and high school and thinking, oh my God, they weren't all that sane to begin with. Some of them, I I love Miss Mitchell, but she was. And then there was uh, Miss Venema in middle school who, uh, I kid you not, I think it was Miss Venema. Yeah, Miss Venema told us, by the way, she was once abducted by aliens. I sh you not. Harlem Middle School, Miss Venema. Anybody knows that anybody that had Miss Venema in Harlem Middle School outside Augusta, Georgia, will attest to the fact that she told her students that she had been abducted by aliens once. Bert Jones would want Miss Venema if she so chose or needed the ten thousand dollars to get some firearms training and have a gun in her desk. And I can just hear the pushback to me now. Well, it wouldn't be every teacher. I mean, we'd only let certain kinds of teachers. We would probably make this, you know, some sort of a a heavily scrutinized scenario where, uh, you know, only certain folks who meet certain criteria would be allowed to carry a gun on school campus. Well, that's an interesting concept. It sounds like you're sort of putting up some sane barriers to possessing a weapon. Tell me more. I mean, we've had school shootings in recent years where officers who were trained to handle these sort of scenarios were too scared to go in. Parkland, Florida. Uvalde, Texas. So you're telling me that a teacher who isn't trained to handle a scenario like that, but would be allowed legally to carry a gun on school property for a $10,000 stipend is somehow going to do a better job at protecting students than the officers who went through the rigorous, I would assume, training for such a circumstance. Also, I'm sorry, we just had a school system fire an elementary school teacher because she chose the wrong book to read to her students. So we, we don't trust teachers to know what's best for their students to read or be read to them. But Miss Katie could be packing heat for an additional $10,000 stipend if she takes a firearms course and you grant her the right to do so at the elementary school. Lisa Morgan with the Georgia Association of Educators telling Greg Bluestein at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, 
we are not law enforcement personnel and should not be seen in those roles. It's not going to make our schools safer. I'm just horrified as to the things that could go wrong with a weapon in the classroom. So keep in mind that Burt Jones has already made it no secret that he plans to run for governor in 2026. And this sort of extremist, extreme right-wing gun fetishist rhetoric is just, I believe, one of the first signs that he plans to go ahead and stake his spot in the primary as the MAGA-iest candidate out there, which is interesting because Brian Kemp is among the least MAGA-iest governors and suffered no consequence from bucking Donald Trump's overtures all this time. That's a story we'll be watching. Back after this, The Ron Show on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast. Broadcasting five days a week to make common sense common again. This is The Ron Show on America One Radio. All right, we finally now have a Speaker of the House, which means that now the government could conceivably function. I'm I'm waiting to see what happens when it comes to uh, spending needs. Obviously, uh, Ukraine, uh, Israeli aid, uh, something that's very important. We, of course, now are, I think, like less than 30 days from yet another government shutdown. Will there be some concessions made? Moderate Republicans all to a person got in line. There were 220 Republicans to vote in the chamber today, and all 220 voted for Mike Johnson. So... Does that mean that he is a moderate Republican? Oh, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. Uh, this from CNN, by the way. And let's just be clear. He is a Louisiana conservative, so you kind of know what you're getting there. He used to write in support of criminalizing. Boy, we just love to throw people in prison today, right? We got, we got the, the cash bail situation. Anyway, he once wrote, I, I say once, often wrote, in support in the criminalization of homosexual activity. In editorials that ran in his local Shreveport, Louisiana paper, the Times, Johnson called homosexuality a, quote, inherently unnatural and dangerous lifestyle that would lead to legalized pedophilia and possibly even destroy, quote, the entire democratic system. In another editorial, he wrote, this is from CNN, your race, creed, and sex are what you are, while homosexuality and cross-dressing are things you do. This is a free country, but we don't give special protections for every person's bizarre choices. Back then, he was an attorney and spokesman for the Alliance Defense Fund, known today as Alliance Defending Freedom, where he, quote, authored his opposition to the Supreme Court ruling in Lawrence v. Texas, which overturned state laws that criminalize homosexual activity between consenting adults. ADF wrote an amicus brief in the case which supported maintaining criminalization. States have many legitimate grounds to proscribe same-sex deviant sexual intercourse. This is Johnson writing in July 2003, calling it a public health concern. By closing these bedroom doors, they have opened a Pandora's box. That's your new Speaker of the House. The face of the Republican Party, aside from Donald Trump, and now has the gavel for the foreseeable future. 
Dan Pfeiffer, co-host of the podcast Pod Save America, wrote in Message Box News today that this new speaker is everything voters hate about the GOP. You want to feel good about something? He writes, after three weeks, multiple failed votes, and several well-known Republican face-planting on the House floor, the Republicans elected someone named Mike Johnson as Speaker of the House. I'm sure your first question is, who the F is Mike Johnson? Is that a real person? I lived in Louisiana five years. I'd never heard of him. Anyway, Dan writes, that's a fair question. I follow politics for a living, and I had to Google Johnson to remember exactly who he was and where he was from. Here's who he is. Pfeiffer writes, Paul Ryan's economic policies, plus Mike Pence's views on abortion, plus Donald Trump's dangerously wacky views on the 2020 election. And that equals Mike Johnson. In other words, Dan writes, if Democrats could design in a lab the perfect candidate to run against, that person would look a lot like Mike Johnson. It's tempting to laugh at the absurd process that led to this heretofore anonymous congressman winning the speakership. However, Johnson is not only the leader of the rowdy Republicans. He is second in line to the presidency, the most powerful individual in a co-equal branch of government during a time of domestic turmoil and international crises on multiple fronts. Choosing someone who is the perfect avatar of MAGA extremism as the face of House Republicans trying to hold on to one of the narrowest majorities in history is certainly an odd decision, and Democrats should make sure Republicans pay a steep political price by picking a series of fights with Johnson and the MAGA House. Ooh. Some instant reaction as well from the Politico playbook. Remember that there were two giant electoral drags on the GOP during the 2022 midterm elections. The first, denialism about the outcome of the 2020 presidential election. And two, policies on abortion rights that voters saw as overly restrictive or out of the mainstream. Now the Republicans have elected a speaker who Dems bet they'll be able to use as an albatross around the neck of every Republican in a swing district or suburban seat. He was the architect of a lawsuit to overturn results of the 2020 race. He has supported abortion restrictions that make no exceptions for rape, incest, or the life of the mother. He fits neatly into their talking points about mega extremism in the GOP. And given his brief time in Congress, they see the rare chance to define a leader of the opposing party before Washington or the press knows much of anything about him. Another little something I thought, and this is really kind of getting into the wonky weeds a little bit, is that uh, this guy's not much of a fundraiser. Kevin McCarthy, I think, has like a million five on hand. Uh, He has three times as much as Mike Johnson does. Uh, David Neer uh, writes for the Daily Coast. It's very difficult for even the most motivated partisan hack to say anything good about Kevin McCarthy But give the ex-speaker this. He could raise money like his life depended on it. His now-extinguished political career certainly did. Since 2016, uh, McCarthy had hauled in $77 million from donors for his own campaign committee, nearly all of which was largesse intended to bolster fellow Republicans. And it worked, at least to an extent, the blog continues. After Republicans lost the House in 2018's blue wave midterm election, McCarthy was duly elected as his party's minority leader, thanks to, in key part to the relationships he forged and the favors he banked as a top GOP money man. And all that dough, which doesn't even include the tens of millions that donors have given to the many PACs in McCarthy's orbit, helped the GOP reclaim the House last year. 
even if the nine seats they netted fell far short of McCarthy's own predictions. Not just his, but a lot of pundits as well. Of course, that shortfall is precisely why McCarthy is no longer Speaker. While a five-seat majority proved to be plenty for Nancy Pelosi, it was never remotely enough for House Republicans. But now their new Speaker, an obscure Louisianan named Mike Johnson, will inherit the same problem, compounded by another one, one that even the hapless McCarthy can smugly claim never tormented him, a lack of proven fundraising ability. I've been seeing a lot of reactions since he was sworn in. Folks, uh, you know, upset that this happened uh, on the left. I, again, I, I have to ask, what did you think was going to happen? Who amongst the GOP House members would you have been satisfied with? We know the answer. None of them. You wanted Hakeem Jeffries to somehow rest the gavel away while his party is in the majority of the House. Well, that was never going to happen. You think maybe, oh, we could have targeted some of the swingy uh, Biden district Republicans, but just because they're in a swing district that Biden might have won doesn't mean that at the local level, we know this, incumbents tend to win their seat because they're a known commodity. And when you're dealing with a House of Representatives where so many people are now represented by a congressman, like three times on average, three times more people than 100 years ago, there's there's minimal impact felt by that average Joe or Jane voter on the ground to go, well, I got to get rid of that guy or that, or get rid of that lady because she or he impacted my life in such a personal and negative way. Don't get me wrong. Democrats are going to go after swing district Biden Republicans, Biden district Republicans. But you weren't expecting any of them to flip or switch parties or just give up or say no or give no answer when it came time to vote to allow Hakeem Jeffries to be the House Speaker, right? And honestly, Hakeem Jeffries, were he the House Speaker, would have probably been mostly ineffective from the jump anyway. And you really don't want your next Speaker of the House he should be by 2025. You don't want your next Speaker of the House to come in already with a resume of meh. Instead, we get an election denialist. And look at these election denialists are dropping like flies, taking plea deals because they don't want to serve hard time now that they've seen the evidence stacked up against them. Rudy Giuliani, Donald Trump, of course, the, the big catches that the Fonnie Willises and the other district attorneys throughout the country are, are trying to, to nab, and they have all of this help now. Anyway, the new House Speaker, also an election denialist. And I cannot let the conversation pass without playing you audio of a woman of color reporter asking Mike Johnson from Louisiana a question about his election denialism past. The Nana, you hear in the background yelling at a black woman to shut up, shut up, was Virginia Fox. The reporter, by the way, her name is Rachel Scott, senior congressional correspondent for ABC News, tweets, I asked Mike Johnson if he stands by his efforts to try to overturn the 2020 election. Members started booing. I also asked if he would support more aid to Ukraine and Israel. 
Go away, go away, one member shouted. We're not doing any policy tonight, Johnson said. Back to the 80-year-old, white-haired, North Carolina-born Virginia Fox, with two X's, by the way. This isn't the first time that she has vehemently sought to stifle an African-American from speaking. Jamal Bowman. Now, I know none of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle will admit to being racist. And I don't think they are. But when you look at the rhetoric and you hear the talking points and look at the legislation that's put forward, what are we to say? The gentleman will suspend. That was Virginia Fox, not just tapping the gavel. Oh, no. The lady was banging the f*** out of that thing. She, by the way, is the House Education and Labor Committee Republican leader. And she wrote a letter to the Department of Education Secretary, Miguel Cardona, not long ago, imploring that he not allow critical race theory to go seeping into the public education lexicon. In this letter, she writes, Combating racism in our schools and society is important, but... Dividing our students based on their race is not a responsible solution. Not that that happens. She went on, I call upon you to issue a press release committing to the American people that nothing in the Department of Education's programs endorse, support, or otherwise encourage school districts to align with the abolitionist teaching network or their self-described co-conspirators. Shut up. Yes, I'm sorry. Okay, so I really didn't intend to make this segment about Virginia Fox. I'm making this point, though, the overarching point that, uh, again, there there are those on the left who are just wringing their hands that, oh, they finally got a speaker. This is bad for us. No, absolutely, wholeheartedly disagree. No, I, I think the last few weeks have shown the American people, the voters, the choice that they will have to make in November 2024. And make no mistake, the Democratic Party has to do a better job of making the sales pitch. They're underwater. Biden, underwater on the economy. No doubt about it. Although, it, it really makes no sense. I, I, can't, I don't understand it at all how uh, a majority of Americans polled think, well, we should go back to the way Republicans want to handle the economy. When the numbers are so clear and obviously in favor of the left. The job growth that occurs under Democratic presidents versus Republican presidents, it's sick in the last four decades. It's unreal, the disparity. Americans overwhelmingly believe in collective bargaining. Republicans fight that. Democrats support it. As a matter of fact, get a load of this guy. And I'm telling you, you shouldn't pay those dues. You should not pay your dues because they're selling you to hell. You're going to be going to hell. You're not going to have any jobs. All those cars are going to be made in China. Every one of them. You can forget it, Michigan. You can forget it, South Carolina. You can forget it, everybody. All of those cars are going to be made in China. See, this is one of those instances where the spoiled billionaire Brett says the quiet part out loud. How dare you come for your share of the company's profits We're going to try and hoard that money for ourselves. And if it means shipping your job to China to do it, well, we're not above doing that. 
See, I actually kind of think that the American electorate, in some sense, deals with a little bit of Stockholm syndrome. Like, we're, we're held captive by the half percent of one percent, basically, who can pull those levers and make us miserable if we don't get in line with their way of thinking electorally. And if we start pushing back and looking for our share of the rewards, the profits, pull another lever, ship those jobs to China, and they deign to call themselves and their politicians patriots. Really? You know what? I got off track a little bit, and I apologize for that. I know this is all about the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, who has a history of uh, anti-choice, anti-LGBTQ rhetoric uh, galore. And now he is another face of the GOP. And it's holding to those old ideals as to why they keep losing elections and why they keep trying to rig the outcomes of elections because they don't want to change their ideology. They'd rather just change the outcome of the election so they could stay in power and inflict that ideology on the rest of us. More Ron Show after this. The America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to the Ron Show for Wednesday. And just so you know, looks like I'm going to make it through the entire show today. I really honestly had no idea. This is my first uh, uh, preparation for a colonoscopy. And I am sitting here advocating that uh, when you get to be a certain age, this is something you're supposed to do once a year. So I would suggest you do so. But I have about uh, seven more minutes, and it looks like I'm going to cross the finish line. Um... And why not? There's been so much, uh, so many headlines uh, here today. We have uh, yet another fine that has been incurred by Donald Trump, who just cannot keep his f-ing mouth shut. He's been fined $10,000 over a comment that he made outside the courtroom in the uh, New York civil fraud trial. Um, so now I believe that's up to $15,000 total. Uh, the Associated Press reporting that uh, he was called to the witness stand and then fined $10,000 today. After the judge in his civil fraud trial said the former president had violated a gag order the second time in less than a week that Trump was penalized for his out-of-court comments. Uh, Before imposing the latest fine, it's read that Judge Arthur uh, Engeron summoned Trump from the defense table to testify about his comment to reporters hours earlier about a, quote, person who's very partisan sitting alongside the judge. Those were his words. Engeron had already ordered all participants in the trial not to comment publicly about his staff. That restriction from October 3rd followed a Trump social media post that maligned the judge's principal law clerk who sits next to him. Trump and his lawyers insisted that his comment Wednesday was not about the clerk. They said he was referring to Michael Cohen, a former Trump attorney who had been testifying earlier. Engerin said Trump's claim was, quote, not credible, noting that he sat closer to the clerk than to Cohen. (laughs) The judge said, The idea that that statement would refer to the witness doesn't make any sense to me. Okay, so that's quirky. Uh, We also found out today, by the way, in a Senate inquiry, that Clarence Thomas got a big loan from a benefactor to buy an RV. However, the New York Times is reporting that the justice failed to repay much, perhaps all, of the $267,230 loan. His benefactor wiped the slate clean. And of course, this could have some ethical and potential tax consequences. This is, this is one of the nine people sitting on the highest bench in our nation's judiciary. <laughs> this is a banner day. I'm sorry, y'all. A banner day 
for giving the American people a snapshot of the modern GOP and conservative movement. Joe Becker reporting at the New York Times, the terms of the private loan were as generous as they were clear. With no money down, Justice Clarence Thomas could borrow more than a quarter of a million dollars from a wealthy friend to buy a 40-foot luxury motor coach, making annual interest-only payments for five years. Only then would the principal come due. Second paragraph, but despite the favorable nature of the 1999 loan, 24-year-old loan, and a lengthy extension to make good on his obligations, Justice Thomas failed to repay a significant portion, that those two words in quotation marks, or perhaps any of the $267,230 principal, according to a new report by Democratic members of the Senate Finance Committee. Nearly nine years later, after Justice Thomas had made an unclear number of the interest payments, the outstanding debt was forgiven, an outcome with ethical and potential tax consequences for the justice. Michael Hammersley, a tax lawyer who has served as a congressional expert witness, told the New York Times, this was, in short, a sweetheart deal that made no logical sense from a business perspective. Now, the inquiry was prompted by a prior New York Times investigation that released in August that revealed that Justice Thomas bought his Prevost Marathon Le Mirage XL, a brand favored by touring rock bands and the super wealthy with financing from Anthony Welters, a longtime friend who made his fortune in the healthcare industry. Has Justice Thomas ever had to adjudicate on anything healthcare related? Yes, of course, the Affordable Care Act. In a statement to the New York Times earlier this summer, Mr. Welters said the loan had been, quote, satisfied in 2008. He declined to answer whether that meant Clarence had paid off the loan in full, nor did he respond to other basic questions about the terms. But while a member, well, I'm sorry, while a number of questions remain, he gave a much fuller account to the committee, which has the authority to issue subpoena and compel testimony. And here we go. The documents he volunteered indicate that at the very least, Clarence Thomas appears to have flouted an ethics rule requiring that he include any, quote, discharge of indebtedness as income on required annual financial disclosure reports. In addition, the Internal Revenue Service treats debt forgiveness as income to the borrower. You and I would see prison time for this sort of thing if we flouted it for more than a decade and tried to hide it from documentation all along. But he's Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, and the rules don't apply to Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Thomas did not respond immediately to questions sent to him through the Supreme Court's spokeswoman. So let's recap, y'all. In the last 24 hours, we have seen uh, the GOP uh, elect someone to be their latest nominee to House Speakership, second in line to the presidency, who is rapidly anti-gay, anti-choice, flanked by Virginia Fox with two X's, who told a black woman reporter, oh, shut up, shut up. He then won that race with solid 220 GOP vote support. We had Donald Trump, again, flouting a gag order, just can't keep his mouth shut, find $10,000 in New York while dealing with this fraud trial 
And then you've got conservative justice firebrand Clarence Thomas essentially getting a $267,230 gift that, for all we know, he never paid a dime for. I'm telling y'all, the last 24 hours are an exemplary snapshot of what the modern conservative movement, the Republican Party, is all about. Give me 12 more months of this, and I'm telling you, there will be a blue wave in 2020. That's going to do it for the Ron Show. I made it! Back tomorrow, I think, 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com. Show notes, we got them. RonShowATL.com. See you tomorrow.